0: Well, I wasn't meant to be preaching today, um, Grant merver was meant to be, and he's fallen ill, so I got the call up yesterday to jump up and share something with you, but uh, it was meant to be like a slow end into long service leave, so that hasn't happened, but to be honest, I love opening the Word of God. So, it's a great joy to do that today. Um, Before I do, though, Grant is getting ordained to the diaconate in January, and as part of that, I need to read some words as part of the official... moment. So here are the words I need to give you notice of. Notice is hereby given that Grant Van der of this parish intends to offer himself as a candidate for the Holy Order of Deacon at the forthcoming ordination by the Archbishop of Sydney to be held in the Cathedral Church of St. Andrews on 17th February 2024. And if any person knows any just cause or impediment for which Grant Van der might ought or- uh, ought not to be admitted to that order, then such person should declare or signify the cause or impediment, impediment immediately to the Archbishop of Sydney. I can let you know how to do that. But uh, being deaconed, it's a serious business. And if there's a a moral failing in Grant's life that um, that we're unab- unaware of, you should make that known. I trust that's not the case, but if the, if it is, you should make that known because it's such a serious thing. Um, let's pray before we jump into God's Word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask just with the many distractions, uh, lots happening in church today, but lots happening in our world and in our own lives, but it's your voice we want to hear from. So would you please speak to us now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, you cannot live without hope. Hope is something that is essential for you to live with. Can't live without hope. Without hope, you shrivel and die. Uh, in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl uh, the, um, was uh, put in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II and he became a psychiatrist after the war. But in that famous book, he describes what happens to a person when they have no hope. This is what he says. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excrement and nothing bothered him anymore. See, that's what happens when lo- when hope dies. And we say people who have given up, that they've lost their hope. And sometimes we say that when people die, uh, uh, Sometimes we say that when people die, but sometimes we say it even when physically they could hold out a little bit longer, but if they've given up hope, kind of the end is near. Um, When the Bible speaks about hope, uh, it doesn't mean what we tend to think about when we talk about hope, because when we talk about hope, we talk about something that we wish to have happen, but we're not really sure it's going to happen. So I hope to get to finish my work before the deadline. It's kind of like, a hope, not sure. But when the Bible speaks about hope, speaks about something that you are certain of in the future without any wishfulness, uncertainty, or doubt. doubt. So the Bible talks about certain hope. And, And the certain hope we have is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth, is coming back for us. And that if we are trusting in Him, He'll take us to be with Him forever. He'll wipe away all the evil, all the sickness, all the pain, and usher us into His kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. Are we looking forward to that? Great. Um, that's our hope, and it's not a wish, wishfulness. It's as, as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which is a fact of history. And if you don't think it's a fact of history, look into it. Um, but our world doesn't have hope. Uh, because our world is not sure, or even they are sure, that there is nothing beyond this life. Uh, We're living in a time in a society where we've never been more secular. There's never been a society in the history of the world as secular as we are that believes that there is no future beyond the here and now, that there is no life beyond this life, that an ultimate future doesn't exist that when we die, we rot. There's never been a society of people in the history of our world who believe that. And it's interesting, Ernest Becker wrote a book many years ago, I think in the 70s. He wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And in it, he discusses this fact of our society. Never been a society that believes nothing beyond here and now. No God, no heaven. It's just the material creation right now. And he also looked at the fact that our society... We've never had a society that puts more emphasis on sex and romance and work and money and wealth and power. And he says that they're related because he says that when you don't believe that there's anything beyond here and now, then that makes everything here and now so important Uh, because we're trying to deal with our sense of cosmic insignificance that keeps on breaking in on us because we don't believe in an ultimate future life is unbearable without hope and our world places its hope in things which continue to disappoint and today we're going to have a look at through the old testament book of uh isaiah we're going to look at the hope jesus gives because the book of isaiah has been called the gospel in the old testament it's why when you're reading the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're talking about the arrival of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, uh, the advent of Jesus, it's why they keep, they, they keep quoting the prophet Isaiah, because he foretold the day the Messiah would come. So we have this famous prophecy, Isaiah 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a Saviour is given. Now, we're going to have a look at that, and in particular, I want to look at Uh, We want to see the hope the prophet Isaiah promises, and it has something to do with the darkness and something to do with the light. Two things. We're going to look at the darkness and then the light, and then we're going to wrap up. So the first one the prophet Isaiah talks about is that you and I, we are living in a land of deep darkness. Before we get there, though, you've got your Bibles open, Isaiah chapter 9. Keep them open on your lap. But before we get there, you've got to understand the context that the book of Isaiah is written into. We're in the middle of the 8th century BC, 700 or so years before the birth of Christ. For hundreds of years, Israel had occupied the land that we today call Palestine. They'd been living there, and for most of that time, they'd lived as a divided state, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and God had protected them from empires. No one had been able to come and subdue or subjugate them. But now they stand before the ambitions of the Assyrian empire led by Tiglath-Pileser III, who was a brutal ruler who set out to extend his territories. When Assyria struck, she blew away small nations like leaves blowing in the wind." She brutalized her enemies, cutting the heads off of the men and lining the streets with their impaled bodies. She deported able workers back to her cities and she forced the nations to pay tribute beyond their means. She sent her people to rule and repopulate the areas that she conquered to prevent any further rebellion. And so there you are, your little Israel, little Judah, watching the flood of the mighty Assyrian empire come towards you. The question is, what do you do? Where do you put your hope? Well, Israel, the northern kingdom of the people of God, they form an alliance with Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. Uh, Syria was just to the north of Israel, and together they asked Judah uh, to form a coalition against the coming Assyrian invasion. But Ahaz, king of Judah, he knew that resistance to the threat of Assyria was absolutely futile, so he refused to join in the coalition. So Israel and Syria then retaliate by attacking little Judah, laying siege to Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 7. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and he promises that the plan of Israel and Syria would not stand. They themselves would be ruined. God says, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 7, Do not make an alliance with them and don't fear Assyria either, for God is with you. But Ahaz, the coward that he was, refused to trust God, he wasn't at all interested in the promises of God. God had promised Assyria and Syria and Israel would have no impact on them. Uh, he All Ahaz believed in was raw power. He didn't believe in the faithfulness of God. And so he wanted an army to push back the two northern enemies who were besieging him. And so Ahaz turns to the enemy of his enemies. He turns to Assyria itself and he sends money from the temple treasury to Tiglath-Pileser III to, um, to come and help them. And so Assyria agrees, they swoop in, and they crush both Israel and Syria, but spared Judah. And so Ahaz sighs with relief. But as soon as that happens... Isaiah comes back to Ahaz and tells him Judah will very soon be overrun and devastated by the very Assyria that they'd turned to for help. Isaiah says, you've rejected God. God promised he would be with you and protect you, and you turned against him by turning to Assyria. And you, you want to trust in Assyria? Let's see how that's going to go for you guys. They're going to come and devastate you, and they're going to swipe in And you're going to be without hope and without light. That's the situation of Isaiah chapter 9. That's where uh, Judah are at. They're under the threat of a Syrian siege. They're walking in darkness. And in this moment in history, they've probably lost 200,000 people to the invasion already. They lived under the fear of their men being murdered, their women being raped, their homes being burned, and their freedom being taken. They're living in the land of death's shadow. The brutal invasion of the Assyrians was coming and they would be completely defeated, completely plundered, scattered in exile. This was their darkest of nights. They were living without hope. Now, some of you might say, well, yeah, that was then, this is now. Things have changed. Back then, of course, they faced terrible darkness, but we're living in a different world. We're living in the world of progress. But you would be missing the point because we live in a world that is just as dark where death's shadow still casts itself over our lives only takes a few moments to reflect on the events of 2023 to realize that this year we watched that awful terrorist attack by hamas terrorists in israel and the captives they took and the the ensuing conflict on Gaza and the many lives that were taken we've seen the russian invasion of ukraine continue and worsen we saw 60,000 people die in turkey syrian earthquake this year in australia the uh, in australia suicide still is the leading cause of death among 15 to 44 years of age people isn't that tragic You are most at risk, if you're under 44, of dying by suicide. Um, We're living in a world where one in ten children are subject to child labour. Forty million people are victims of modern-day slavery. Of the one in in ten children in the world involved in child labour, a million of them are involved in sexual slavery. Horrendous, isn't it? And as we turn closer to home, this year we witnessed the brutal murder of the 21-year-old PE teacher Lily James in the city earlier this year and we're reminded that one woman per week is murdered by her current or former partner. We live in a world of death's darkness. The events of this year force us to realise that this is the world we live in. And it's the shadow of death's darkness which is the greatest struggle we face in life. And many of us are particularly aware of that at Christmas. This week will be four years since a friend of mine died of cancer at the age of 30. And um, it's been four years, but the pain and grief for me, just a friend, but for her family, still immense. And that makes Christmas, often for many of us, a terrible time because we're reminded of the people that we ought to be spending our life with that aren't here anymore. That's the darkness. It's the world we live in. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you, you can't keep burying your head in the sand, avoiding the reality that the world we, there is something profoundly broken here. And we cannot fix it. But it's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely precious. Because in the land of death's darkness, a light has dawned. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Christmas. So here, Isaiah chapter 9, it begins like this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past... God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now for us, this sentence doesn't make sense because we don't know the geography of Israel. But if you look at the geography of Israel, you'll see that the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun are right at the top of Israel. So whenever the enemies come from the north, the the Syrian threat, the Assyrian threat, the Babylonian threat, which of the tribes of Israel get hit the first? It's always Naphtali and Zebulun. It's their men that get murdered. It's their women that get raped. It's their homes that get plundered. And yet the promise is among these people living in death's darkness, they will be the first to see the light, that dawns. Isn't it interesting? So Zebulun and Naphtali, In Jesus' day, that region was known as Galilee. That's where Jesus showed up first. The light of the world enters our world, and he starts shining in the very place death's darkness casts its longest shadow in all of Israel. Verse 2, sorry, verse 2, "...the people walking in darkness have seen a great light." on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that word, a light dawned. It wasn't discovered, it wasn't developed, it wasn't generated by us, it dawned, it came, it was given by someone else. Sometimes we think, you know, the Christmas spirit is we are the light and we can do great things for the world, which is kind of true human beings were ingenious and we do many great things. but the, the message of Christmas is the very opposite. The message of Christmas is that we are helpless without light and hope in a world of darkness and we need light to come from another place and dawn in this world. We can't ignite the light, discover the light, generate the light, but God can and he sends the light of the world, Into the world. Verse 3, you've enlarged the nation, the prophet Isaiah says, and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So here's the great end of all the darkness in the world. It's a day likened to a day when the workers are at the harvest. Their work is over. It's time to celebrate. Or like a pastor about to enter into long service leave, right? It's a day of great joy. The light is triumph But the question is, well, how has the light come? How has the darkness been dispelled? And the answer is not by military force. So verse 4, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke of that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Again, you need to know the story of the Old Testament here. Uh, Midian was defeated by the judge Gideon in Judges chapter six to eight, and Gideon was the weakest, most pathetic judge in all of the Book of Judges. Do you remember God calls him when he's shaking, hiding in a in a vat made of uh, in a vat for seeds? He's terrified. He has no courage. And God sends him out to defeat Midian's army with just 300 men. And the message is very obvious that it's not by might that God will deliver his people. It's by the foolish. It's by the weakness of men that he will achieve his great victories. And in case you don't get the point, the prophet Isaiah continues... On that day, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The deliverance that God brings will need no military hardware. You can burn it all. Throw the boots for battle in the fire because God will bring about a peace without bringing war and bloodshed. The clothing of war will be burnt on the bonfire of God's salvation, never to be needed again. And then the obvious question is, well, who will bring this day? Who will bring this peace into the world? And the surprise is a baby. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father. God's answer to everything that terrorizes our world is a child born in poverty. He's going to be weak. It's going to look foolishness to the strong. He's going to be poor. And it's interesting, you read the Gospels and Jesus' poverty just, we don't notice it but his poverty, is, it's just always there. He's born to teenage parents who uh, have no money, no clout, no connection. They can't even get a room in an inn. They have to stay the night when she gives birth with a young infant in a, in a shed. And he stays, he is put in a feed trough. It's brutal. The nativity, you know, oh, it's cute. No, it's a brutal moment where political refugees are traveling. There's no room. He's poor. No place to... Remember, they flee to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill them. And Jesus' whole life is marked by suffering and weakness. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he had power to heal and calm storms, but he never used that to make his life easy because God was bringing a salvation, not through the strength of men, but through weakness. And, suffering. and this son's name, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. No other religion says God has suffered. And yet Jesus, he knows what you're going through, and you, therefore you can talk to him about it. He's, he's been in poverty. He's experienced infinite pain. He's been alone and humiliated and mocked and shamed. He's been there and it makes him a great counsellor. You can talk to him about it. Secondly, mighty God. If he was merely a human child, your hope rests on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he is God, mighty God, you can trust him completely. Not only that, he is everlasting father. He is the author of our soul, and he will love us eternally. And finally, he is the prince of peace. Or the peaceful prince. I like that. He's the peaceful prince. He's not a prince that comes with an army and chariots to destroy and kill. He's the prince who owns everything and who is rightly worshipped by everyone. But he comes gently, longing people to come back to him. He comes not just with a a heart for his people, but he tries to reconcile enemies because he wants them to taste in his and share in his kingdom. That's who he is. Wonderful, isn't he? And how does he do it? How does he bring about this? He brings it about through weakness. And I think for many of us, that's the hardest part for us to appreciate about the Christmas story and the Jesus story, because if Jesus really is God come to earth, why hasn't the darkness been dispelled by now? If the light has dawned, why is there still darkness in the world? And the answer to that question, of course, is because if Jesus had come the first time to destroy all the sources of evil, then we would be destroyed with it. Because all of us contribute, maybe it's only a small part, but all of us contribute something to the evil of the world. And he doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want to wipe us out. And so in his first coming, his whole focus is on about how do I deal with the darkness and the evil inside of every human heart. And so he comes with mercy and forgiveness. He comes to pay the penalty of your sin. He does not come to bring judgment. He comes to bear your judgment in his body so that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life that's the message of christianity And he does it by his death his whole life was a constant suffering you know as he grows up jesus has the audacity to claim i am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life has he achieved that by himself being plunged into absolute darkness you remember on the cross He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sun turned black for three hours. He was plunged in the absolute darkness of the judgment of God on human wickedness that he was bearing. So that you and I might not bear that judgment ourselves. The judgment fell on him rather than us so that we might receive the light of life. And so he took my darkness, he gave me light, he took my death, he gave me life, and he took the judgment so that I could be forgiven. that's how God brings about this victory. Not through military might, but through the birth of a weak saviour. The world despises. But this, he's the one that brings God's victory. That's Christianity. That's the end of death's shadow. I think you see that in um, the movie Gran Torino. Anyone watch Gran Torino? Because I'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't. All right. um, this is uh, one of uh, Clint Eastwood's movies. He both filmed and um, directed it. And you know, Clint Eastwood, he's Dirty Harry, right? All of his Dirty. This is 70s, right? Al Stewart knows what I'm talking about. Um, but Dirty Harry was this detective who just used to shoot everyone, kill kill all the enemies, right? Shoot the bad guys. But in this movie, uh, he, he kind of, um, it's his solution to the problems of violence. There's a story about this old war veteran who sits on his front porch in middle America, watching his suburb change, and he gets very, very grumpy about it. He's a gruff, he's not a very nice man at all, actually. Um, but he sees this uh, Asian kid uh, growing up, one of his neighbours, and uh, this kid, he wants to get a job, wants to do well in life, wants to do well at school, he's got a girlfriend, you know, he's just trying to head down, knuckle down, you know. And, uh, but his cousins are in this gang, and the gang's constantly hassling him to join the gang. And he's like, I can't do that and, you know, l- do my life well. Anyway, Clint Eastwood, he sees this happening. And uh, he's like, you know, how do you lift this young Asian kid out of the poverty of this kind of gangland violence that's happening all around him? How, there's just no, it didn't, doesn't seem to be any way of 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 get of a way of getting him away from this gang. Anyway, the the ending, the punchline, I'm going to spoil it for you. Are you ready? You can block your ears if you don't want to hear it, but here's the punchline. Clint Eastwood at the end, he he ends up overcoming the violence of his neighbourhood by, he walks up to this gang and he realises that if this little friend of his, young teenage boy, if he doesn't join, they're going to come and kill him and, and, uh, and kill his family. And so Clint Eastwood walks up to the gang. It looks like he's going to take them on for a fight, but he isn't. He walks up to them and they shoot him cold, dead on the road. And there he is dying. Final scene is him lying in a pool of blood on the road, arms outstretched as a cross. It's very interesting what Clint Eastwood is saying in this movie. Uh, he wants us to spot that this character is a Christ figure. And he is what because he's been shot dead... The gang ends up, the police come, they lock them all up and this young kid is set free to live his life without the threat of the gang. He wins this victory by giving up his life and taking the darkness to give his friend the light of life. I think Clint Eastwood's a Christian, he's Roman Catholic, I think he's understanding the gospel here. So this is the victory Jesus Christ wins. He's born into poverty, suffers his whole life, gives his life to death that we might be liberated from our own sins and the darkness. But it costs him everything. That's what Christianity is about. A light has dawned. We have hope in the face of death. Israel's being told a day is coming. Jesus has come, but we're still waiting for the day, aren't we? when He would return and wipe away every, all the evil and bring hope and peace to light and life. One day we will stand before God in pure light, nothing to fear, nothing to hide, if your sins are forgiven, and we will all feel the joy of being in the presence of God. That's what Christmas is about final illustration is this is my grandfather with my daughter Evie many years ago. I remember um, my grandfather's passed away now, but I remember growing up uh, my nanny and papa had a wonderful marriage great very close but uh, my nanny died eight eight years prior to my papa and uh, so he was left on his own for eight years and he was he was deaf so he couldn't go out do anything he had no friends because he couldn't just can't hear people. So deafness, terrible thing to go through. Anyway, so he'd sit at home every day and uh, I remember on these cold, wintry mornings, I'd go and visit him and I'd knock on the door and he'd get out of his chair. And he's got, you know, he'd half fall over getting there because he's very wobbly. Get to the door, he'd be shaking with his keys and would be You could hear him gruff on the other side of the door, complaining, trying to open the, never get the right key in the door to open it. And uh, he'd open the door frustrated, and then he'd see his grandkids. And his face, his frown would turn to a smile. And for 30 minutes, my little Evie would bounce all over the room, jump on his lap, play with his whiskers. And uh, at the end of our time, he'd have a great big smile on his face. And he'd come over to me and he'd put 50 bucks in my hand. And he'd say, there you go, Todd. Todd's my brother's name. <laughs> 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 and like, it's Toby. I was, ah, oh, sorry, Toby. If you're a parent, don't call your kids with the first letter. Don't give them the same. Anyway, and he'd uh, and always, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. What had happened there? The light had dawned. His little granddaughter had come and brought light and life to his life and that's what Christmas is about the Lord Jesus God with us and he is still with us by his spirit he is in your life if you put your trust in him he is with you right now whatever you're going through and many of us we struggle because the darkness is still here God why is it still here because he's waiting The light has dawned, but we're not in the glorious presence of God yet. And we long for the day, don't we, when Christ would return and he'd usher in his kingdom. And there we would be in his presence, accepted by God, singing his praises, standing shoulder to shoulder, no more sickness, no more death, no more mourning, no more regrets. Feasting, dancing, singing, enjoying the world to come. That's what's on offer. So here's the thing. Here's application today. Just enjoy that. Let's rejoice our way into Christmas this year. God is with us. He's with you in whatever you're going through. Hope has a name. Yeah? We're going to sing a song now. It's one of my favorite Christmas carols, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's got this haunting uh, verse in a minor key, I think. And uh, I love this song because it it does both the darkness and the light really well. And so the verse is kind of like, we are still living in the land of death's darkness. It's hard. Some of the stuff you guys are going through, it's painful. But then you hit the chorus and we sing, rejoice, rejoice, the light has dawned. So let's um, stand and sing.